0: Well, I'm thankful to be with all of you guys again this Sunday. Today we're going to continue our march through the book of Genesis. That's right. Genesis. That very first book of the Bible, we will be in Genesis chapter 28. This morning, Genesis chapter 28, I encourage you to have a Bible or maybe one of those Genesis scripture journals that we have here. If you don't have one of those, uh, please, uh, out by the connect desk, there's a, there's a few copies left. If you are using one of those black ESV Pew Bibles, it will be on page 22. Page 22. Now, as you are turning there, let me tell you a little bit of history about myself. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, out of high school and into my years at the University of Nevada, Reno, um, I worked with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. It was kind of, I, I worked with them amidst going to school. And my task, by and large, was to track and capture and relocate big-game animals in the state. So things such as deer, antelope, elk, even bears, and mountain lions. It was an incredibly fun job. Incredibly fun job. But even with the f- funness of it, uh, there was danger. There was, there was quite a bit of danger there. I had my fair share of numerous run-ins with with Uh, with death and and that could have gone really bad. You know, mostly that came from the work with the bears and the mountain lions and and my occasional run-in with rattlesnakes, uh, who all, by the way, do not like to be touched, okay? (laughs) I think it's probably safe for all animals, wild animals, but I'll tell you, bears, mountain lions, snakes do not like to be touched. That never went well for me. But out of all of my experiences out there in the field, the ones that have impact on me even to this day are not those dangerous encounters. It was the nights on the mountain by myself. It was the dark and lonely nights on the mountain that have impacted me the most to this day. Because it was these nights when and I became a Christian at 19 years old, kind of right in the beginning of this career. It was these nights up on the mountain where I couldn't distract myself, you know, or entertain myself with TV or something. And I was forced to spend a lot of time simply talking to God. All I had was a little ESV Bible that I would try to read by headlamp. But most of the time, it was just darkness. It was just silence. But here's where I'm appreciative of those nights, church, because it was those nights that God seemed to use in a profound way to always bring me back to what is it that you're putting your hope in? What is it that you're putting your your trust in? What is about these dark nights that seem to to focus in my heart's attention to what I want to give my life to? See, God used those nights in profound ways. That I'm thankful for and I bring this up because in Genesis 28 today we're going to see Jacob have one of these nights on the mountain with God himself where he is going to be forced to reconcile what does he want to give himself to what is his life going to be marked by or what is it going to be and lived in devotion to a night in a situation that would be devoid of any worldly comfort on Jacob's end and it is these nights, these situations that often God uses right, to reveal himself of, do you trust me? Because it is these nights, church, and maybe you've had them yourself, maybe not a physical night on the mountaintop, but certainly a dark night of the soul, where you realize that without God being real and who he actually is, there is no hope. But if he is real. If he is who he says he is, then there's actually inexpressible hope in him. And that's what we'll see with Jacob today. But let me stop there. Before I read Genesis 28, I'd like to pray over you. And as I do that, will you pray for me? And then we'll read God's word together. But let me pray. Well, Father, as we are about to step into your word that we believe that you've given us to know you, to edify ourselves, to, to point us to Christ in every way. That we pray that you would do what your word and Lord, your spirit is committed to doing and that is highlighting and governing our worship to you and to you alone. And so Lord, we pray for our kiddos too and the teachers that are leading them. May they, through the same text, see just the wonder and the beauty of who you are, Lord. And in these dark nights that they can trust that you have provided a way for them to know you, believe in you, and trust you with all things. But God, I do want to pray for us in here. And I pray specifically, Lord, that you would govern our hearts this morning. That you would guide our paths. You would grow our minds But above all else, Lord, you would glorify yourself. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to go ahead and just read through the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban your mother's brother. God almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padam Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aram to take a wife from there. And that he, and as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabeoth. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you all. and and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will, give, I will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we're thankful for God's word. All right. Well, as we jump into Genesis 28, we have to remember that we are coming off the tail end of a massive family event in Genesis 27. Where we learn that through lies and deception, Jacob had received the blessing of his father. And it was a blessing that was likely intended to be given to the Esau, the older brother of the firstborn. That, was, that would have been normal practice for the firstborn to receive the father's blessing. But Jacob had deceived Isaac and got the blessing for himself. So before we look at the main literary point, and that would be Jacob's dream and his response... We have to remember how this occasion has formed. We have to remember that Jacob is not just going on a journey for the sake of going on a journey. That he is leaving the land because his brother Esau is sent out to kill him. He wants to destroy his brother who in many ways has stolen his identity. Took what he thought belonged to him and him alone. That he won the blessing of the father. And Esau is filled with rage and anger. And Jacob's mom, Rebecca, realizes that likely the only way that Jacob survives is if he goes and lives in exile, leaves the, the family land until his brother calms down. Now additionally, we also learn that Rebekah deeply wanted Jacob to find a wife from their native land, a wife out of their own people, a wife that would believe and trust and worship the same God in whom Abraham, Isaac, had worshiped. So looking at the beginning of verse 28, we see that Isaac calls Jacob and gives him instruction to go to Padam Aram, right, to go find a wife. Even Isaac blesses Jacob again and even clarifies that he's praying for Jacob that he would receive, not his blessing, but God the Father's blessing, the Father, the the Abrahamic blessing and covenant. Almost foreshadowing of what we're going to see come in just a few verses. But this wife and this worship is important for Isaac and Rebekah. It's important that he goes and he, he links arms with someone who's going to protect the covenantal direction of God himself. But what about Esau? Where is he at? Well, in verses six through nine, we actually see where the heart of Esau is at. That not only is he mad at Jacob and wants to kill him, but really he's, he's angry at everything. He's angry at Isaac. He's angry at Rebekah. In many ways, probably angry at God himself. Because in verses 6 through 9, upon hearing that Jacob was to go to Padamaron, realizing that he was to go there to find a wife, and that would actually be pleasing to his parents and pleasing to God, what does Esau do? Well, he doubles down on his sin. He goes the opposite direction. He seeks out another Another wife. He already housed two Canaanite wives, and we see that he doubles down and he marries another wife from the family of Ishmael. Now, pastorally, I think we should take a moment here to try to understand why 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 is this important for us to recognize this morning? Because Esau, and here's the the pastoral bent that I have, in the church, is Esau's doubling down on his sin. He's doubling down on his sin. Right? He doesn't want to repent. Even the book of Hebrews tells us that there was no room in the heart of Esau for repentance. And repentance is when you turn from your rebellion against God and you actually turn back to God. But Esau doesn't want that. In fact, he wants the opposite. So he doubles down on his sin. And I see this. So often, so often, church, that for many of us, when we rebel against God, when we, when we travel down a road, sometimes we declare to ourselves that we might as well just keep going. We might as well just keep going down that road because either there's no point in me trying to turn back to God, he won't accept me. Or somehow we get in our head that two wrongs will somehow make a Right? church it's just not the case it's just simply not the case increasing sin does not remove sin and i want to remind us this morning that there's always room to turn from your sin and turn to christ there is always room for that as glenn mentioned even earlier during our time of confession right he gladly welcomes back the sinner He desires it. And the Bible is full, church. It's full of people who have walked down some really shady roads in their life. Their rebellion was big and grand. But yet when they determined that all it did would lead to death, but Christ leads to life. And they turn from that sin and turn to him. There's joy everlasting. Not because things automatically fix themselves or everything circumstantially gets better but you're always in a better place in Christ. And so we must not fall into the same folly as Esau and doubling down on our sin and thinking that it's going to lead to something better. It won't. But looking at verse 10, as we continue and really dive into the the main literary unit of this passage we begin to see that the God of Genesis is starting now to unfold his plan of redemption to the next generation. Where Jacob now is meant to carry the torch of his covenantal promise to bring about the promised seed. The promised seed, if you remember, we heard not just in Genesis 12 with Abraham, but we actually learned all the way back in Genesis 3 that God was going to bring about a Redeemer but now we're focusing on Jacob. And Jacob is on his way to his family's homeland, a journey of about 400 miles. And starting in verses 10 and 11, we see that he's coming to a certain place. He's not there yet. He's taking a break. It's dark out. Jacob, I'm sure, is tired. And Moses, who's the author of Genesis, points out in verses 10 and 11 three times that Jacob was in that place He grabbed a rock from that place. He laid down in that place. Well, what's that place, Moses? He says, hold on, I'll I'll tell you in a moment. But he's trying to get our attention that this place will be significant. Something is about to happen here. And starting in verse 12, church, we learn about what happens. In verse 12, we're told that while he was asleep, Jacob received a heavenly dream. It says, behold, there was a ladder on earth, right? One end touching the heavens, the other end touching earth itself. Now, don't think Home Depot ladder, okay, by the way, right? Think of more like a flight of stairs if you're trying to imagine this. And behold, the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending upon this, right? This is amazing. That Jacob is is getting this glimpse into not just the the spiritual realm that we often are confided to, but he's given us these spiritual eyes where he can see beyond that. The spiritual reality. In the spiritual reality, church, this is good news that God is actually amidst earth. That he is not aloof from his creation, right? God did not just create the world in Genesis 1 and go, all right, I'm done. Hope you guys figured it out. But rather, what Jacob's dream is showing us, that there is this this link between heaven and earth. And who is governing that link? Who is governing that? We see that the Lord is standing above it. The Lord is there. At verse 13, in, in the Hebrew church, you can even translate this, that the Lord was standing beside it. Or even standing beside Jacob himself in this moment. Showing Jacob and even showing us by extension that God is intimately involved in his creation. And that there's a component to what goes on in this world that we cannot see. But doesn't mean it's not there. If you can imagine this scene from the perspective of Jacob. That for the first time in his life we're told that he is being spoken to by God, that God is directly dealing with him and not somebody else. But what could be going through the mind of Jacob, right? Remember, Jacob was not the golden boy. Even though he was the predestined, elected son to continue the covenant of Abraham, all we've been told so far about Jacob's life is that he was a trickster, right? He was deceitful, he was a liar. Now he's wandering in exile away from the promised land, not knowing if he will ever return. Will his brother Esau catch up with him? And here he's seeing this dream, this reality of heaven and earth. And then God speaks. What is God going to say to him? The trickster, the liar, the cheat. Is the curse of judgment finally here? Is that what he's going to hear first? Of how much he deserves the penalty for his sins? Certainly, that's what he deserved. But like the prodigal son, church, if you remember that parable of Jesus, what he heard from the father is vastly different than what he had in his head. Because he doesn't hear condemnation. Rather, he hears blessing, right? He, gets, he is given grace. He's given this undeserved gift. And the undeserved gift in verses 13 through 15 is all of the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. Right, Showing him that he has been chosen by God to be an instrument to the promise keeping which God started and will keep to the end. So some of those factors which we've, we've seen multiple times through the book of Genesis, the promise to provide a land, the promise to provide a people, the promise to bless the world and bring about the promised seed, Jacob now knows that he's the next in line to carry that promise forward. Not because he deserved it, but simply because, like all of the men before him, God had chosen him to do it. We even see in verse 15 this promise of presence that I'm going to be with you. Even outside the promised land. God's saying, listen, my presence is not bound by earthly realities. It's not as if you cross the border into another nation, God says, Well. I can't go any further. He's saying, no, no, no. All of creation belongs to me. I'm the God of all the world. And if I'm God of all the world, I'm going to be with you even in exile. And at this point, church, we have to recognize. Remember who the original audience of Genesis would have been? Who Moses would have originally been speaking to as he told this story of these forefathers? It would have been the nation of Israel. As they are wandering desert, as they are in exile, they are learning about the God of their fathers and a God who is present and promises to be with them even when they are in exile, away from the promised land. They're learning, oh, God can be with us here? God can be with us even when we sin? Yes. Right? Now. Even in the darkest of circumstances, God is present. And this must have fueled their hope, fueled their hope during their own exodus, during their own exile, right? As they're wandering, wondering, has God abandoned me? Is God going to finish what he started? And Moses is retelling this story to them saying, yes, yes, he will, because this is a God who cannot lie. This is the God of creation. This is the God of all power. See, there was hope that God knew what he was doing even when Jacob did not. And that's really good news for us, church. God knows what he's doing even when we do not. Because Jacob didn't, Israel didn't, we don't. The Bible even calls Christians today that we live in exile. That we we are in our own exodus, if you will. That our home right now is not our final home. And we are wandering and trusting as God continues his plan of redemption and will bring it to fulfillment. See, even in the darkest nights, church, God is saying, you can trust me. You can trust me even in the darkest nights. When there doesn't seem to be another voice around anywhere, you can trust mine. So for the first time, we see God speak to Jacob established a continuation of the covenant and then starting in verse 16 church we see the response of jacob when he wakes up how does he respond to what he has been seen and what has been told to him which is going to be really important for us to look at because this is true of jacob and it's true of us today that how we respond to god's revelation tells us everything about what we believed about the revelation and also what we believe about ourselves so, how does Jacob respond? Well, I think he responds in, in three particular ways. And that's what I want to kind of spend the rest of our time looking at. Is three ways that Jacob responds. The first way, starting in verse 17, he responds with confession about the God that he just had interaction with. Interaction with. He says, This is this place is awesome. Not because right, the accommodations were awesome. Remember, he was sleeping on a rock but he's saying it's awesome because God is present, because God is awesome, right? He's he's tying it to him. And the text says he does so with fear. And we've talked about this before. This is the fear of the Lord, church. A good and godly fear that God gives his people. It's a fear that's mixed with, it's a mixture of, of reverence and awe, wonder, terror, it's a mixture of when you realize that this God, who is merciful and grand and almighty and gives you grace, but yet he's also holy and distinct and could destroy you in a second. But, we, but you've seen his love for you. So you've seen his power. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's, it's recognizing God's power, but also amidst his love. So we see Jacob confess that God is in this place. Confession on who God is always follows God's revelation. And then we see in verses 18 through 19, church, that the nameless place before is given a name by Jacob here. It's called Bethel, which means house of God, a place that we'll see God's people come back to often throughout the Bible. It it serves as a historical place throughout the scriptures. But then we see response number two, starting in verse 20. We see Jacob commit to the Lord in a certain way. That the revelation of God draws him to say, I'm all in. I want to be in, Lord. And we see Jacob make a vow, a vow here. In a vow much like we see even in our day, a vow is simply a repetition of promises that have been handed to you, that you are repeating what has been told to you. Now, some believe that Jacob here is displaying kind of his own need for sanctification, that he's conniving again, right? He's saying, if you do this, Lord, then I will do this. Now, that may be the case, But based upon this being described as a vow, I don't think it is. I think what Jacob is doing is simply describing what God had told him. He is repeating back the promises in which God has given him. That God will be with him. That God will provide for him. That God will return him to the land that was promised. It's an act of remembrance. A correct response to God's revelation is, I'm going to I'm going to sink my heart and soul into who you are and what you have said, Lord. I'm not going to twist it, try to fit what I want, but I want to remember what you have said and hold fast to that. A response that we don't try to go and earn God's love, but we respond that we've been given it. And lastly, number three, in verse 22, I think we see a response of Jacob to worship God with his resources resources. It says at the very end of our chapter that, and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. A tenth, or sometimes it's referred to as a tithe. Maybe that's a word that you've heard in church before. Well, a tithe simply means a tenth of your resources. Now, in the scope of this sermon, I'm not going to go into all, all things that could be said about the tithe and, and how it relates to New Testament Christians today versus Old Testament Mosaic law bound individuals in the Old Testament. But I do want to say this, church, because our text points this out. And we saw the tithe before. It's actually not the first time in Genesis we've seen mention of a tithe or giving If you recall, Abraham was one of our first people to to show us this. Abraham talked about a tithe after the victory with with Melchizedek, the high priest. And here we see Jacob talk about a tithe. Now, remember, how does this sit before that Mosaic law is given? Well, the Mosaic law is not given until Exodus. So this is before God codified his law. But yet, there's an understanding, church, from Abraham and Jacob, that we are to worship God with our resources. That that's a part of responding to the revelation of God. That there was an understanding that when you are responding in worship, that it's not just your mind, right? It's not just what you believe. It's not just what you think. It's not even just not not your body, how, how you then physically worship god but it's also your resources how do you leverage the very things which god has entrusted you for his purposes and for his glory because when it comes to money in the christian when you believe that god is who he says he is church and believe that all you have is from god it has been given to you by grace. It changes the way that you view money. It does. God changes the way that we view money. We don't view it as a means to an end, but we view it as an instrument of worship. You know And sometimes it can be difficult to talk about this in church, mostly because I've seen it done poorly. I've even seen the words of a guy like myself who's preaching on it. His words get twisted and used for not good reasons. But the, I don't want to make the mistake of saying, oh, it doesn't matter how we use our money. Because clearly it's in the text. Clearly there is a responsibility of those who have come to revelation of who God is. And believe and trusted and have received everything from God. That changes the way that you view money. Listen, giving to God. Let me say this very clearly: giving to God does not put you, or to put God in your debt. It's not a quid pro quo thing, like "Oh, if I give this amount, then God will return me with me with this amount." All right, that is using God as a means to an end. But throughout the testimony of Scripture. We see that money is used to be an instrument of worship, an instrument of worship, or resources as an instrument of worship. Obviously, the way that our currency is hasn't always been the currency of the world, sometimes you would tithe with different things rather than dollar bills, but the principle has always been the same. You use the resources that God has entrusted to you to worship him, and you see them as they all belong to God. But what does it look like for me to trust God and give away this back to Him and His purposes? And so, you know, I don't know, I don't know what anyone gives in this church. That's something that all the elders have committed to: is abstaining from ever knowing what any individual person in this church gives. And don't worry, we're not passing a plate after the sermon, too. Okay. This church is not about money we're about the gospel we're about the gospel but god is after your worship church and so it would be pastoral malpractice if i didn't address the things that god said can can be an idol in your own heart can draw you away from worshiping him and worshiping something else and so i'm saying for all of us church Let's look at this even from the life of Jacob himself and say, what does it look like for me to be all in even here? What does it look like for me to say, Lord, I want to recognize that all that I have is a gift from you and trust you with what it looks like to be generous in this life. We're all called to steward the resources that God has given us well. I'm not saying that tomorrow you gotta start tithing. I'm not even saying that there's a magic number out there that you have to try to hit. It's a matter of the heart, so the New Testament says, that we are to give joyously and generously without compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. If you're just trying to hit a number, you're missing the point. But I do think, church, let's fight this idol. Let's fight this idol together and say, we're not going to let money be God. We're going to let money worship God. And we commit to doing that together. We want to live in response to what God has done with a joyful expectation on what he will continue to do also. So those are the three responses that we see from Jacob here in Genesis 28. But now I want us to now look at Genesis 28 as Christians for a moment. To look back on this moment And let the New Testament say, okay, does this, outside of some of those practical things we've talked about, is there anything in this text that has important value for the Christian to consider today? And I think there is, because Jesus, church, talked about this text. Jesus brought up this dream in speaking to his disciples in the early days of his ministry. Let me show you this. This is from John 1. It'll be on the screen. When Jesus is calling his first disciples to come and follow him, he's talking to this man named Nathaniel, and starting in verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? Do you believe You will see greater things than these. And look at verse 51 carefully, church. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up, opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You guys recognize that language? Angels ascending and descending. Yeah, that's the language of Genesis 28. That's the language of this this dream, this revelation which Jacob had. But Jesus is using this to say, do you remember that? Do you remember that moment? Well, there's something greater that you're going to see even than that. There's something greater that you're going to see. But notice that Jesus doesn't describe a ladder, does he? As the angels are ascending or descending upon. What does he say? They're ascending and descending on the son of man. Which was a term of divinity, which Jesus attributed to himself when he's talking about how he is God. Do you see what he's saying, church? Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the ladder of Genesis 28, right? I am the mediator between heaven and earth. And that's why you're going to see greater things than even what Jacob saw. 1 Timothy 2.5, let me show you this. This is where Paul makes this crystal clear. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's why, church, Jesus would so scandalously say that no one comes to the Father except through me, right? Jesus is trying to get us to understand that he is the ladder, that he is the bridge between heaven and earth. And so then, church, as we look back on this, right, as we look back on Genesis 28 as Christians, we are quickly reminded that we have seen greater things than Jacob, haven't we? Right? We have seen through the testimony of scripture, the atonement of sins. We have seen what the mediator has done. We've seen him go to the cross and bear the penalty for our sins. Right? We've seen that he walked out of the tomb. We have seen that he has ascended back to his throne that he currently occupies today. Right? We have seen that he indwells and sends the Holy Spirit to indwell Christians and seal them for all of eternity. And we have seen the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus' words became true, that we have seen something greater because we have seen pointedly who the mediator is and what he has done. And I pray, church, that we would see that this mediator, this ladder, if you will, That even the darkest nights on the mountain, even in those darkest nights, Jesus is saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. And I pray that we would respond accordingly, right? That we would respond not to gain something from Jesus, not to try to convince him to become the mediator, but that we would respond because he is the mediator. That he has come, that he has lived, that he has died, that he has been risen. And we respond to the promises that are still active today. The promises to never leave us nor forsake us. The promise that he will accomplish everything he said he would do. And much like Jacob, it would be a serious response. Right? That we would be like, yeah, well, thanks, Lord. I'm going to go do what I wanted to do anyways. People say, no, clearly, this God is worthy of worship. This God is worthy of worship for the rest of my life to be committed to. I won't do so perfectly. Thanks be to God for that, that he covers my sin even as I limp along in my discipleship journey. But he is the latter, church. He didn't call Jacob, he didn't call any of us to climb it. He said, come to me and I'm the bridge. Come to me, I'm the mediator. Let's go ahead and end there, church. Let's pray together. Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm thankful that we have such a God as you. That the God of Genesis 28 is the same God in whom we can trust today. The same God that we can know and believe that you have bridged the the great chasm between heavenly perfection and sinful humanity that God through your person and through your work that you have provided the very means in which we can trust you and that heaven reality is not just a distant, unattainable place but one that we get to live forever in the presence of our Savior. And may we trust you in all things now knowing the end. Lord, we love you. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen.